0: Part two Chapter fifteen of the Job This Librivox recording is in the public domain The Job by Sinclair Lewis Part two The Office Chapter fifteen Mr Julius Edward Schwartz was a regular visitant at the flat of Mrs. Lawrence and Una. Mrs. Lawrence liked him. In his presence she abandoned her pretense of being interested in Mamie Maggan's arid intellectualism and Una's quivering anxieties. Mr. Schwartz was ready for any party whenever he was in off the road. Una began to depend on him for amusements. Mrs. Lawrence encouraged her to appear at her best before him when he or one of mrs lawrence's men was coming the two women had an early and quick dinner of cold ham and canned soup and hastily got out the electric iron to press a frock produced pemberton's flesh-tinted vanishow powder and the lipstick whose use una hated but which she needed more and more as she came back from the office bloodless and cold they studied together the feminine art of using a new veil, a flower, or fresh white kid gloves to change one's appearance. Poor Una! She was thinking now, secretly and shamefacedly, of the beautifying methods which she saw advertised in every newspaper and cheap magazine. She rubbed her red, desk-calloused elbows with Pemberton's cold cream. She cold-creamed and massaged her face every night, standing wearily before a milky mirror in the rather close and lingerie-scattered bedroom, solemnly rotating her fingers about her cheeks and forehead, stopping to conjecture that the pores in her nose were getting enlarged. She rubbed her hair with Pemberton's Olivine and Petrol, to keep it from growing thin and her neck with coconut oil to make it more full she sent for a bottle of madame legrand's bust developer and spent several saturday afternoons at the beauty parlors of madame isoldi where in a little booth shut off by a white rubber curtain she received electrical massages applications of a magic enray hairbrush vigorous coal creaming and warm compressing and enormous amounts of advice about caring for the hair follicles from a young woman who spoke french with a jewish accent by a twist of psychology though she had not been particularly fond of mr Schwartz, but had anointed herself for his coming because he was a representative of men yet after months of thus dignifying his attentions the very effort made her suppose that she must be fond of him not mr Schwartz, but her own self did she befool with pemberton's preparations de paris sometimes with him alone sometimes with him and mrs lawrence and one of mrs lawrence's young business-man attendants Una went to theaters and dinners and heterogeneous dances. She was dazzled and excited when Mr. Schwartz took her to the opening of the Champ du Pompom, Pom, the latest potpourri of amusements on Broadway. All under one roof were a super vaudeville show, a smart musical comedy, and the fireworks of one-act plays, a Chinese restaurant and a Louis Cannes restaurant and a Syrian desert caravan restaurant, a ballroom and an ice skating rink, a summer garden that, in midwinter, luxuriated in real trees and real grass, and a real brook crossed by Japanese bridges. Mr. Schwartz was tireless and extravagant and hearty at the Champ du Pom Pom. He made una dance and skate. HE HAD A BOX FOR THE VAUDEVILLE. HE GAVE HER CAVIAR CANOPY AND LOBSTER A LA RUE DE TOISEUR IN THE LOUIS CANS ROOM, AND SPARKLING BURGUNDY IN THE SUMMER GARDEN, WHERE MOCKING-BIRDS SANG IN THE WAVERING BRANCHES ABOVE THEIR TABLE. UNA TOOK AWAY AN IMPRESSIONISTIC PICTURE OF THE EVENING. SCARLET AND SHADOWY GREEN, SEQUINS OF GOLD slim shoulders veiled in costly mist the glitter of spangles the hissing of silk low laughter and continual music quieter than a dream crowds that were not harsh busy folk of the streets but a nodding procession of gallant men and women a kindly cleverness which inspirited her and a dusky perfume in which she could meditate forever like an Egyptian goddess throned at the end of incense-curtained aisles, great tapestries of velvet and jeweled lights, swift, smiling servants, and the languorous well-being of eating strange, delicious foods, orchids and the scent of poppies and spell of the lotus flower, the bead of wine and lips that yearned ecstasy in the oriental pride of a superb jewess who was singing to the demure enchantment of little violins her restlessness satisfied a momentary pang of distrust healed by the brotherly talk of the broad-shouldered man who cared for her and nimbly fulfilled her every whim an unvoiced desire to keep him from drinking so many highballs, an enduring thankfulness to him when she was back at the flat, a defiant joy that he had kissed her good-night just once and so tenderly, a determination to be good for him, and a fear that he had spent too much money on her to-night and a plan to reason with him about whiskey and extravagance. A sudden hatred of the office to which she would have to return in the morning, and a stronger, more sardonic hatred of hearing Mr. S. Herbert Ross pluck out his vest-pocket harp and hymn his own praise in a one-man choir, cherubic but slightly fat a descent from high gardens of moonlight to the reality of the flat where lawrence was breathing loudly in her sleep the oily smell of hairs tangled in her old hairbrush, the sight of the alarm clock which in just six hours would be flogging her off to the mill a sudden frightened query as to what scornful disdain walter babson would fling at her if he saw her glorying in this broadway circus with the heavy mr Schwartz, a ghostly night-born feeling that she still belonged to walter living or dead and a wonder as to where in all the world he might be a defiant protest that she idealized walter that he wasn't so awfully superior to the champ du pompom as this astral body of his was pretending, and a still more defiant gratitude to Mr. Schwartz, as she crawled into the tousled bed and Mrs. Lawrence half-woke to yawn. Oh, that you, Golden? God, I'm sleepy. What time is it? Una was sorry. She hated herself as what she called a quitter, But now, in January 1910, she was at an impasse. She could just stagger through each day of S. Herbert Ross and office diplomacies. She had been at Pemberton's for a year and a third, and longer than that with Mrs. Lawrence at the flat. The summer vacation of 1909 she had spent with Mrs. Lawrence at a Jersey Coast resort. They had been jealous, had quarreled, and made it up every day, like lovers. They had picked up two summer men, and Mrs. Lawrence had so often gone off on picnics with her man that Una had become uneasy, felt soiled, and come back to the city early. For this Mrs. Lawrence had never forgiven her. She had recently become engaged to a doctor who was going to Akron, Ohio, and she exasperated Una by giving her bland advice about trying to get married. Una never knew whether she was divorced or whether the mysterious Mr. Lawrence had died. But even the difficile Lawrence was preferable to the strain at the office. Una was tired clean through and through. She felt as though her very soul had been drained out by a million bloodsucker details, constant adjustments to Ross's demands for admiration of his filthiest office political deals, and the need of keeping friendly with both sides when Ross was engaged in one of his frequent altercations with an assistant. Often she could not eat in the evening. She would sit on the edge of the bed and cry hopelessly, with a long, feeble, peculiarly feminine sobbing, till Mrs. Lawrence slammed the door and went off to the motion pictures. Una kept repeating a little litany she had made regarding the things she wished people would stop doing, praying to be delivered from Ross's buoyant egotism from Mrs. Lawrence's wearing of Una's best veils, from Mr. Schwartz's acting as though he wanted to kiss her whenever he had a whiskey breath, from the office manager who came in to chat with her just when she was busiest, from the office boy who always snapped his fingers as he went down the corridor outside her door, and from the elevator boy who sucked his teeth. She was sorry, She wanted to climb, she didn't want to be a quitter, but she was at an impasse. On a January day, the Pemberton office beheld that most terrifying crisis that can come to a hard slave-driving office. As the office put it, the old man was on a rampage. Mr. Pemberton Sr., most horribly awful of all the big chiefs, had indigestion or a poor balance sheet. He decided that everything was going wrong. He raged from room to room. He denounced the new poster, the new top for the talcum powder container, the arrangement of the files, and the whispering in the amen corner of veteran stenographers. He sent out flocks of office memos, everybody trembled. Mr. Pemberton's sons actually did some work, and, as the fire spread and the minor bosses in turn raged among their subordinates, the girls who packed soap down in the works expected to be fired. After a visitation from Mr. Pemberton and three raging memos within fifteen minutes, Mr. S. Herbert Ross retreated toward the Lafayette Café, and Una was left to face Mr. Pemberton's bear-like growls on his next appearance. When he did appear, he seemed to hold her responsible for all the world's long sadness. Meanwhile, the printer was telephoning for Mr. Ross's O.K. on copy. The engravers wanted to know where the devil was that color-proof— The advertising agency sarcastically indicated that it was difficult for them to insert an advertisement before they received the order, and a girl from the cashier's office came nagging in about a bill for India, Inc. The memos began to get the range of her desk again, and Mr. Pemberton's voice could be heard in a distant part of the office, approaching, menacing, all-pervading. Una fled. She ran to a washroom, locked the door, leaned panting against it, as though detectives were pursuing her. She was safe for a moment. They might miss her, but she was insulated from demands of, where's Ross, Miss Golden? Well, why don't you know where he is? From telephone calls and from memos whose polite pleas was a gloved threat. But even to this refuge the familiar sound of the office penetrated, the whirr which usually sounded as a homogeneous murmur, but which, in her acute sensitiveness, she now analyzed into the voices of different typewriters, one flat, rapid staccato, one a steady, dull rattle. The z of typewriter carriages being shoved back, the roll of closing elevator doors, and the rumble of the ascending elevator, the long burr of an unanswered telephone at a desk again and again, and at last an angry, well, hello, yes, yes, this is Mr. Jones, what do you want? Voices mingled, a shout for Mr. Brown, the hall attendant yelping, Miss Golden! Where's Miss Golden? Anything for Sanford? Mr. Smith, do you know if there's anything for Sanford? Always, over and through all, the enveloping clatter of typewriters, and the city roar behind that, breaking through the barrier of the door. The individual analyzed sounds again blended in one insistent noise of hurry which assailed Una's conscience, "'summoned her back to her work. "'She sighed, washed her stinging eyes, "'opened the door, and trailed back toward her den. "'In the corridor she passed three young stenographers "'and heard one of them cry, "'Yes, but I don't care if old Alfalfa "'goes on a rampage twenty-five hours a day. "'I'm through. "'Listen, May, say, what do you know about me?' "'I'm engaged. No, honest, straight. I am. Look at me ring. Oh, it is not. It's a regular engagement ring. I'm going to be out of this hell-hole in two weeks, and Papa Pemberton can work off his temper on somebody else. Me, I'm going to do a slumber marathon till noon every day.' "'Gee!' "'Engaged,' said the other girls, and—engaged?' going to sleep till noon every day and not see mr ross or mr pemberton that's my idea of heaven thought una there was a pile of inquiring memos from mr pemberton and the several department heads on her desk as she looked at them una reached the point of active protest "'S. Herbert runs for shelter when the storm breaks "'and leaves me here to stand it. "'Why isn't he supposed to be here on the job "'just as much as I am?' she declaimed. "'Why haven't I the nerve to jump up "'and go out for a cup of tea the way he would? "'By Jiminy, I will!' She was afraid of the indefinite menace "'concealed in all the Pemberton system "'as she signaled an elevator.' but she did not answer a word when the hall attendant said, You are going out, Miss Golden? She went to a German-Jewish bakery and lunchroom and reflectively got down thin coffee served in a thick cup, a sugar-warted coffee-kuch, and two crullers. She was less willing to go back to work than she had been in her refuge in the washroom. She felt that she would rather be dead then return and subject herself to the strain. She was through, like the little engaged girl. She was a quitter. For half an hour she remained in the office, but she left promptly at five-thirty, though her desk was choked with work, and though Mr. Ross telephoned that he would be back before six, which was his chivalrous way of demanding that she stay till seven. Mr. Schwartz was coming to see her that evening he had suggested vaudeville she dressed very carefully she did her hair in a new way when mr schwartz came she cried that she couldn't go to a show she was clean played out she didn't know what she could do pemberton's was too big a threshing machine for her she was tired absolutely all in poor little sister he said and smoothed her hair she rested her face on his shoulder it seemed broad and strong and protective she was glad when he put his arm about her she was married to mr Schwartz about two weeks later She had got herself to call him Ed. Eddie she could not encompass, even in that fortnight of rushing change and bewilderment. She asked for a honeymoon trip to Savannah. She wanted to rest. She had to rest or she would break, she said. They went to Savannah, to the live oaks and palmettos and quiet old squares. But she did not rest, Always she brooded about the unleashed brutality of their first night on the steamer, the strong, inescapable man-smell of his neck and shoulders, the boisterous jokes he kept telling her. He insisted on their staying at a commercial hotel at Savannah. Whenever she went to lie down, which was frequently, he played poker and drank highballs. He tried in his sincerest way to amuse her. He took her to theaters, restaurants, roadhouses. He arranged a three-days hunting trip with a darky cook. He hired motor boats and motor cars and told her every "Here's a new one" that he heard. But she dreaded his casual seeming suggestions that she drink plenty of champagne dreaded his complaints, whiny as a small boy. "'Come now, Uny, show a little fire. I tell you, a fellow's got a right to expect it at this time.' She dreaded his frankness of undressing, of shaving, dreaded his occasional irritated protests of, "'Don't be a finicking, romantic school, miss. I may not wear silk undercloth and perfume myself like some bum actor,' but I'm a regular guy. Dreaded being alone with him, dreaded always the memory of that first cataclysmic night of their marriage, and mourned, as in secret for year on year thousands of women do mourn. Oh, I wouldn't care now if he had just been gentle, been considerate. Oh, Ed is good. He does mean to care for me and give me a good time, but— when they returned to New York, mister Schwartz said robustly, Well, little old trip made considerable hole in my wad. I'm clean busted, down to one hundred bucks in the bank. Why, I thought you were several thousand ahead. Oh oh I lost most of that in a little flyer on stocks. Thought I'd make a killing, and got turned into lamb chops. Tried to recoup my losses on that damn flying machine, passenger-carrying game that that blank-blank-blank-blank let me in for. Never mind, little sister. We'll start saving now. And it was worth it. Some trip, eh? You enjoyed it, didn't you, after the first couple days while you were seasick? You'll get over all your fool-girly-girly notions now. Women always are like that. I remember the first missus was, too and maybe a few other skirts, though I guess I hadn't better tell no tales out of school on little old Eddie Schwartz, eh? ha! <laughs> course, you high-strung virgin kind of she-males take some time to learn to get over your choosy, finicky ways. But, Lord, love you. I don't mind that much. Never could stand for these roughnecks that claim they'd rather have a good, healthy, walloping country wench than a nice, refined city lady." "'Why, I like refinement. Yes, sir, I sure do. Well, it sure was some trip. Guess we won't forget it in a hurry, eh? Sure is nice to rub up against some southern swells like we did that night at the Avocado Club, and that live bunch of salesmen. Gosh! Say, I'll never forget that Jock Sanderson. He was a comical cuss, eh? That story of his—' "'No,' said Una, "'I'll never forget the trip.' But she tried to keep the frenzy out of her voice. The frenzy was dying, as so much of her was dying. She hadn't realized a woman can die so many times and still live. Dead had her heart been at Pemberton's, yet it had secreted enough life to suffer horribly now, when it was again being mauled to death. And she wanted to spare this man— she realized that poor Ed Schwartz, puttering about their temporary room in a side-street family hotel, yawning and scratching his head, and presumably comfortable in suspenders over a woolen undershirt, she realized that he treasured a joyous memory of their Savannah diversions. She didn't want to take joy away from anybody who actually had it, she reflected, as she went over to the coarse lace hotel curtains parted them stared down on the truck-filled street and murmured, No, I can't ever forget. End of chapter fifteen.